Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. One April afternoon when my children were very young, I heard a commotion out in the backyard, and so I went out to take a look at what was going on. There was a whole group of neighborhood kids all standing around in a circle on the back end of our neighbor's property right up against the woods, and they were all looking down at the ground and talking very animatedly, and I didn't know what was going on until one of the kids, uh, my kids, looked up and said, Dad, ERA is coming out. Now, ERA was the name of our neighbor's pet turtle. Why they named him ERA, I have no idea. They were baseball fans, but why would you call your turtle earned run average? It just didn't make sense. But that was the turtle's name. He was a big guy, about 10 inches across, and he was the fascination of all the neighborhood children for about a couple of years. They kept the turtle in a pen uh, at the back of their property, right up against the woods. And the big fascination was in the fall, they would watch as the turtle would dig deep into the ground and kind of bury himself, uh, hibernating for the winter. And then, of course, in the spring, about this time of year, was when ERA would dig himself back out of the ground and present himself like one risen from the grave. And that was, you know, quite interesting to the kids. But that was one of the signs of spring around our house back in those days. And isn't that the promise of spring after all, that things dead and dormant and dying can come back to life again? And maybe that's why it's so appropriate that we observe Easter, Resurrection Sunday, at this time of year, because Easter holds the greatest promise of all, the promise that people who are dead on the inside can come back to life again. And you might say, well, yeah, dead on the inside, that pretty well describes me. Maybe you're still suffering from, you know, kind of a COVID hangover where the pandemic has left you feeling lost and listless, a little dead on the inside. Or maybe the deadness you feel has to do with the grief you've experienced recently of having lost a loved one. Or maybe the grief you've experienced of having someone dear to you walk right out of your life. Maybe the deadness is a deadness of defeat, the feeling that you just can't overcome the things that keep dragging you down, the fear that you'll never get your act together. And at the center of it all is is a kind of an emptiness, a, a sense of disconnection from God. Call it a hole in the soul, if you will. Well, there's a reason for all of that, as we're going to discover in God's Word, the Bible today. We're looking at a text of scripture, not a text that retells the Easter story. You heard the Easter story read for you by Carly earlier in the service. We're not going to look at one of those texts that talks about what happened on Easter Sunday, but rather we're going to look at a text of scripture that talks about why it happened. What's the significance of all of that? 
We're looking at some verses from the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, a church that he knew quite well. He'd spent a lot of time teaching there, and then he moved on, and about five years later, writing from a prison cell, he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, kind of to reinforce a lot of the things that he had taught them over the years. And in the middle of the letter, he brings up the importance of Jesus' resurrection. And from what he tells us here, we learn that Jesus' resurrection means new life for us. It wasn't just about Jesus himself coming back from the dead. It's about how we can have new life in him. So here in chapter 2 of Ephesians, we're going to look at three contrasts. Contrast between what we are without Christ and what we can be in Christ. And in the process, we're going to see how the resurrection holds the promise of new life for you and me. Now, the first three verses of Ephesians 2 are verses in which Paul diagnoses our human condition. And to be honest, it's not pretty. It's pretty ugly. Here's what he says about us in verses 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead in the transgressions and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, Paul is basically saying here, you are dead, you are disobedient, and you are doomed. Have a nice day. And it might seem kind of mean, you know, the things that he's saying to us here, but it's actually rather loving that he would confront us with the truth about ourselves. Because after all, uh, if you are sick, you need somebody to tell the truth to you, right? You need somebody to tell you the truth about what's really wrong so that you can take the appropriate cure. And that's essentially what Paul is doing for us here. He's saying, look, apart from Jesus, this is our spiritual condition. This is what explains our defeatedness, the emptiness, the, the lifelessness that so many of us experience. Paul begins by laying out the bad news about our condition, and then we'll come back to how the resurrection can change all that for us. So if you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to give you the first half of each of the three contrasts, and then we'll come back to each one and, and give you the rest. But we're going to begin with three descriptions of us, all of which begin with the letter D. You can call them the dirty Ds, if you will. And the first one is that we are dead. We are dead. He says in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. The truth is, you may feel very much alive physically, but be utterly dead where your spirit, that part of you that relates to God, is concerned. And Paul explains elsewhere that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he died that day, not just physically, but spiritually. The life he had with God that involved an utter ease of relationship and frequent conversations with God, all of that was radically interrupted when Adam disobeyed God and made himself an enemy by his disobedience. God evicted Adam and Eve from the garden. They no longer enjoyed his, his presence, his fellowship. The most important part of Adam died. And the Bible says we all died with him that day. All of us who are Adam's descendants, all of us who are born into Adam's race, are born spiritually dead on arrival. We are dead. And most of us don't even know it. 
And it can be very disconcerting when somebody tells you what Paul says here. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But that's the truth about us that we've got to reckon with. There's a story some years ago about a guy named Roger Verone, 47, who lived in France and he wanted to get married. But to get married, uh, to get his marriage license, he had to first produce a birth certificate. So he went to his town hall to get a copy of his birth certificate and was surprised when the town clerk informed him, Monsieur, you are dead. At least she said it in a polite way. But he went on to learn from the, church, from the, uh, the town clerk that uh, somebody named Roger Verone had died three years previously of alcohol poisoning and hypothermia in a field in the south of France. Now, Verone would like to have figured out who in the world was supposedly occupying his grave and who was perpetrating this hoax, but he was, you know, kind of on an urgent errand here. He wanted to get married, and so he tried to prove to the town clerk that, no, oh, look, I'm here, I'm, I'm alive, but the town officials would not believe that Verone wasn't dead until he could prove otherwise. Until then, Verone was not allowed to get married. Paul similarly breaks bad news to us when he says, uh, I hate to tell you this, but you're dead. <laughs> you're dead in your transgressions and sins. You may think you're alive, but the truth of the matter is, where it counts most of all, you are dead. Apart from Jesus, you can protest all you want and think that you're spiritually alive, but God says, no, in fact, you are dead to me. And worse yet, not only are we dead, but Next, we learn we're also disobedient. We're dead and we're disobedient. He says in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, namely the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Paul saying, look, until Jesus came along, it was natural for us to just walk in, in, in sin, to, to live our lives in constant violation of God's moral law. I mean, think about it. Not one of us has ever kept all the Ten Commandments perfectly, right? Even if we think we have, somebody might say, well, I've never murdered. And Jesus says, well, have you been angry in your heart toward your brother? Ever called him a fool? And you say, well, yeah, of course. He says, well, then you've murdered him in your heart. You're a murderer, too. Uh, you might say, well, I've never committed adultery. And Jesus said, well, did you ever look at a woman to lust after her? And you have to say, well, yeah. And he says, uh, well, then you committed adultery with her in your heart. You're an adulterer too. And who among us hasn't ever, you know, has never lied or never stolen or never coveted, never dishonored their parents, never taken God's name in vain? We've all done all those things. Sin comes so naturally to us because we are dead in sin with Adam. Now we figure, well, it can't be that bad. I mean, everybody does those things. And Paul says, well, yeah, that's kind of the point. We just fall in step with the course of this world, not realizing that the world itself is following the devil, the prince of the power of the air, as he's called here, following the devil in his rebellion against God. He's the one under whose influence we become sons of disobedience characterized by disobedience toward God, following our fleshly passions, doing whatever feels good to us, whatever we think is best. The fact of the matter is that we are slaves to sin 
We are destined to disobey and incapable of extricating ourselves from the whole mess we've made of things. This world is a mess, wouldn't you agree? Well, guess what? We've all contributed to that mess by virtue of our sin. Near Watsonville, California, there's a creek with a kind of a strange name. It's called Salsipuedes Creek. Now, Salsipuedes, roughly in Spanish, is translated, get out of it if you can. And the point of the name comes from the early days of California, when alongside of Salsipuedes Creek, uh, there, was, um, there, there was quicksand. And one day, a Mexican laborer fell into the quicksand and was struggling to get out, and some haughty Spaniard on a, on a horse came along and said to him, Salsipuedes, like, get out of it if you can, which wasn't especially helpful. Because the man tried all the harder to get out and only ended up sinking deeper. See, we are dead, we are disobedient, and because of all that, Paul finally says, we're doomed. We're doomed. He says at the end of verse 3, because of our sin, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In our natural condition, we are spiritually dead, slaves to sin, and subject to God's judgment. Children of wrath, that's a Hebrew way of describing children who, have, who deserve the punishment of God. Like the rest of mankind, we're in that same condition. Our sinful nature sets us up for judgment. Now, the Bible warns that eternal punishment awaits those who remain in their sin. I know many blow off the notion of hell these days, finding it hard to accept. You know, they might say, well, there's no such thing as hell. That's a myth created by religious folks to keep the rest of us from having fun. But what if it's not a myth? What if there is a real place called hell? And all of us who have sinned against God deserve to go there. And what if I told you that in all of the Bible, the one person who talks most about hell is guess who? Jesus. Who has more of a right to warn us about going to hell than the one who was willing to give his life to keep us from going there? Because gratefully, the story doesn't end here with the three dirty deeds. We are dead, we are disobedient, we are doomed, Paul says, but then he opens verse 4 by saying, but God. I love the but God passages of Scripture, don't you? They usually come in the darkest moments when things are really, really bad. And then comes, but God. But God speaks of the times when God, motivated by love and mercy and grace, intervenes on our behalf, steps in to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And Paul says here in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and here's the good news that completes the, the first contrast of this passage. We are dead, but can be raised with Christ. We are dead, but can be raised with Christ. Paul said in verse 1, you were dead in your trans transgressions and sins. But here he tells us that our God is rich in mercy, and in spite of our rebellion and sin, he still loves us greatly. And speaking to the believers at Ephesus, he says to them, you were dead in your trespasses, but God has made you alive together with Christ. 
This is the great hope of Easter. Not just that Christ came alive from the dead, proving himself to be the conqueror of sin and death, but that God has raised us too. God has made us alive together with Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, as surely as Jesus came alive from the dead, so in Christ you have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. We have died with Christ to the old life dominated by sin. We have been raised with Christ to walk in the newness of his resurrection life. Look, if Jesus had died and stayed dead, we'd all still be in our transgressions and sins, dead in in our sin. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and in Christ, we all can be made alive in him. Have you experienced that new life in Christ? I knew a man who once put his faith in Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and we literally watched him go from spiritual death to spiritual life. About... A month later, he wrote me a letter explaining what it was like for him to go from being dead on the inside to coming alive in Christ. And these are his words. He said, Words are not capable of expressing the gratitude and relief I've experienced over the last month. For the first time, I'm looking forward to the rest of my life because I know that my relationship with Christ will blossom into something I'm presently incapable of comprehending. For the first time in my life, I feel unconditionally loved. No alcohol, no drugs, no threats, no ifs, just pure, simple love. I'm responding to that love in a big way. My entire adult life, I've been starving for this kind of relationship where I can spread my arms, open my heart, and receive his approval, forgiveness, and support. Jesus' resurrection means new life for us. We are dead, but can be raised with Christ. Next, we learn we are disobedient, but can be retooled for good. We're disobedient, we're programmed to sin, but we can be retooled for good. When I was uh, a kid, we grew up next door to a a man who worked in a Ford plant. Mr. Hook worked on the assembly line for Ford, uh, making Ford cars. And uh, every year, there came a couple of weeks where he was kind of laid off. They were on a hiatus because... The plant was going through what they called retooling. Uh, and and uh, that meant that, you know, the assembly line that had produced one product all year long had to be completely changed in order to pr- produce, you know, the, the new year, in, the new and improved model of that automobile or to produce an entirely different car altogether. They had to retool the plant. They had to turn the plant around to make it, make it work, to produce something new. Well, in order for the life of a sinner to produce anything other than what is always produced, it needs a complete retooling. Paul said earlier in the passage that we were spiritually dead, but also disobedient. We lived more under the influence of the evil one than under the influence of God. We floated along with everyone else, just doing whatever seemed best to us. Apart from Christ, we were destined for disobedience, sons of disobedience, So to get us to produce anything other than disobedience will require a complete retooling. And that's not something we can do for ourselves. Try as we might, we can't by our own will change our attitudes and actions that come from the very core of our being. I love what Phillies baseball announcer Harry Callis once said in introducing Phillies ballplayer Gary Maddox. He said... uh, Yeah, Gary has really turned his life around. 
He used to be depressed and miserable. Now he's miserable and depressed. <laughs> you know, you, you try to take the same person and get something different out of them, it's not going to happen. But when God raises us to new life in Christ, he goes to work on the inside retooling us. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And here in our passage in verse 10, Paul talks about what we have become in Christ, how he has retooled us. It says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That word workmanship is a cool word. In the original Greek, it's the word poema. It sounds like our English word poem, right? Well, it's a word that speaks of a work of art. We are God's work of art. We are his masterpiece. That's what this is saying. No longer are we sons of disobedience, but having come alive in Jesus, we are retooled to produce good works that please God. He makes something beautiful of our lives. Look, if Jesus had died and stayed dead, we'd still be sons of disobedience. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead, and those who belong to him have been raised to new life with him. God is now at work making us new creations in Christ, retooling us, making masterpieces of our lives, created to produce now good works rather than disobedience. Jesus' resurrection means new life for us. We were dead but can be raised with Christ, we were disobedient but can be retooled for good. And finally, we were doomed but can be rescued from wrath. We were doomed but can be rescued from wrath. In Christ, God does something we don't deserve. He saves us by his grace. Look at verses 8 and 9 where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And when it says that we're saved by grace, you need to understand that grace is God's unmerited favor. It's God doing for us what we don't deserve. And it says we are saved by that grace. Literally, we are rescued from, by, by his grace. Rescued from what? We're rescued from the wrath we deserve as disobedient children. We were children of wrath. Remember it said that earlier in the passage? We deserve God's judgment. The rescue that he offers to us, it says here, is God's gift to us. Not something we earned. It's not something that we deserved. We can't brag about it because Jesus did the rescuing when he died on the cross and, and rose again. We were doomed, but Jesus came and rescued us. The former mayor of a small town in France, the town of Plalo, recalled a hot August day in 1944 when as a 15-year-old boy, he stood in a line against a wall before a German firing squad. Virtually all the people of his village had been lined up, and uh, they had been found guilty as a village of harboring French freedom fighters. And for their sin, they were going to lose their lives. And so the firing squad was getting lined up, and, and this boy recalls how 15 years old, he, he stood there, thinking about his pre-war life roaming the green countryside of France and what a delight that was. He, he stood there thinking about all the life that he was going to miss out on because he was lo losing his life so young. But he said, most of all, as I stood there, 
I couldn't help but think about what it was going to be like to die. What it would feel like when the bullet started ripping into my body. He hoped that nobody could hear the whimperings coming from deep within his throat every time he exhaled. Suddenly, the boy heard the sound of exploding shells just outside of his little village. Quickly rolling tanks could be heard, and and the Germans were forced to abandon the firing squad and face a small unit of American tanks and 20 GIs led by Bob Hamsley, a corporal in Patton's 3rd Army. A battle ensued, and when the fight was over, 50 Nazis were dead and 60 others had been taken prisoner. Forty-six years later, in 1990, the town of Plalo honored Bob Hamsley on the very spot where dozens of the town's citizens would have died had he not come to their rescue. The man who initiated the search for Hamsley, the man who was behind the ceremony to honor him, was the former mayor of Plalo, that same 15-year-old boy. He was determined to find the man who had saved his life and to honor him because, as he put it, it's hard to forget your Savior. Don't you see, that's what Jesus did for us in a most spectacular way. He stepped into human history at just the right time and fought a fight we could not win, except that in this battle, he willingly gave his life for us, taking the punishment that we deserved, taking the bullets that should have have ripped us apart, rescuing us from the wrath we deserved. Let us never forget our Savior. Crucified, buried, but risen again. Left to ourselves, we are doomed. But in Christ, we can be rescued from God's righteous wrath against our sin. You know, as surely as Jesus rose from the dead that Sunday morning, so long ago, so today we can have new life in him. He's not a dead hero, but a risen savior. He's not some martyr in the grave, but our living Lord. He's not just some figure from the past, but one who lives again and holds us in the future and guides us into the present, or guides us into the future and holds us in the present. God in his love and grace has made a way for dead, disobedient, doomed people to be raised, rescued, and retooled, and Jesus did everything to make that possible. He died to take the punishment. He died to take the punishment our sins deserved. He removed the offense that stood between us and God. He came alive again to offer us new life with God. He lives in us by his spirit, changing us from the inside out, enabling to live lives pleasing to God. And all of that becomes ours through faith in Christ. Notice again verse 8 where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So God did it all in Jesus. Everything necessary to secure our salvation. He presents that salvation to us as a gift. But we've got to receive the gift, right? If the gift's going to become ours, we've got to receive it. And the way we receive this gift, God says, is through faith. Faith is simply trust. Trusting Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Jesus says, I've done all that's necessary. Just trust me to save you from your sin. Left to yourself, you are disobedient, dead, and, and doomed. Trust in me, and I'll raise you, rescue you, and retool you. 
I was intrigued. Recently, I came across an article in Christianity Today magazine, and the, the name of the article immediately caught my interest. The article title was, Please Don't Read My Books Anymore. And it was by somebody named Doreen Virtue. And I, I couldn't place Doreen Virtue right away, except when she started, it all began to fall into place, who, who, was, who this was. She writes, as recently as five years ago, I was the world's top-selling New Age author. At the time, I enjoyed a phenomenally lucrative lifestyle. I lived on a 50-acre ranch in Hawaii. My publisher treated me like a rock star, flying my husband and I first class to give sold-out workshops across the globe. We would stay in penthouse suites at swanky hotels and rub elbows with celebrities. Yet despite this worldly success, I was hardly at peace. For all my new age seeking, there were answers I could never find. She goes on to talk about her upbringing in the cult of Christian science. And then how she ascended as a new age teacher and author. How for 20 years she toured with some of the best-selling new age authors, believing and teaching her basic message was, your words create your reality. And she thought that in teaching that, she was serving God. Yet despite this worldly success, she says, we were unrepentant sinners with lives marred by divorces and addictions. Having sold out workshops, standing ovations, adoring fans, and celebrity friends gave us swollen egos. Well, Doreen Virtue was intensely curious about all religions because she believed that all religions would get you to God eventually and that Christianity was one of those paths. So she would listen to the radio and she'd listen to Hindu radio and Buddhist radio and New Age radio. I didn't even know that was a thing. But because she was interested in all religions, she'd also occasionally listen to Christian radio. And here's what she says. In January 2015... I was driving along a Hawaiian road while listening to the Scottish-born pastor Alistair Begg on the Christian Satellite Network. Begg was giving a sermon called Itching Ears. It was about 2 Timothy 4 where the Apostle Paul writes that in the end times, people will want their itching ears tickled by false prophets who offer false hope. I could tell he was describing people just like me. God used Begg's sermon to convict me for the first time in my life. His words pierced my stony heart, and I felt ashamed of my false teaching. When I got home, I told my husband, Michael, that I wanted to start attending a real Christian church. He readily agreed. Well, attending church led to reading the Bible, and she said, reading the Bible changed everything. When I got to Deuteronomy 18, I encountered a list of such sinful activities that included several I was practicing such as divination, interpreting signs and omens, and mediumship. This passage says that people using these methods are detestable, an abomination to God. I was broken, deeply ashamed, and humbled by these words. I dropped to my knees in shame and sorrow. I'm so sorry, God, I kept wailing in repentance. I didn't know. And on that very day, I gave my life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Today, Doreen Virtue tells people to stop reading her old best-selling books. She's written a new book entitled Deceived No More. 
how Jesus led me out of the New Age movement and into his word, in which she points her readers to Jesus as the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father. She concludes her article by saying, after seeking but never finding peace in the new age, I have finally found it in Christ. See, Doreen Virtue thought she was really living, but came to understand that she was actually spiritually dead, disobedient toward God, and doomed for destruction. But in Christ, she has been raised to life, rescued from judgment, and retooled to serve God's purposes in this world. You know, it's not just best-selling New Age authors that need such a transformation, but each and every one of us. Because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all earned God's judgment. And apart from Jesus, we're all doomed. But here's the thing. If God could raise, rescue, and retool Doreen Virtue, he can do the same for you. Because here's the thing. Jesus isn't some dead martyr. The tomb was empty that Easter morning. The tomb was empty because Jesus was alive, conquering sin and death for us. He is risen. Let's try it again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And he lives and reigns in the hearts of all who come to him in faith. So come to him. All who feel dead inside. All who feel empty. All who feel listless and defeated. All who are fearful and lost. Jesus' resurrection means there can be new life for you today. Let's bow in prayer. As we're in an attitude of prayer, I, I just want to say, especially to those of you who maybe you came in today feeling a little dead, a little empty, like you're missing something in life, and, and now you've got a better understanding of why. That, that Easter wasn't just about Jesus coming alive, it's about an opportunity for you to come alive in him. And maybe you need to do what Doreen Virtue and so many others have done, many of us right here in this room. Come to that point of confessing your sin and, and acknowledging that you need Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Coming to him in faith, trusting him, trusting that when he says, whoever believes in me shall have eternal life, trusting him that when he says, if you confess your sins, I'll forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And so maybe today you're at the point of saying, you know what? I, I don't want to remain dead. I don't want to be disobedient. I don't, I don't want to be doomed. I'm going to trust Christ today to be my rescuer from sin and my leader for life. The Bible says there's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. Jesus has already done everything necessary. All you can do is receive that gift. 
by putting your faith and trust in him and him alone to be your Savior and Lord. And if that's the desire of your heart this morning, the place to start is just by telling God, saying something like this from your heart, right where you sit. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I acknowledge that like everyone else, I have done things and said things and thought things that are displeasing to you. I thank you for sending Jesus, your son, whose life was of eternal worth, to come into this world and and pay the ransom of my sin, to take my place, to take the punishment that should have been mine. I confess my sin, I repent of my sin, and I I receive Jesus as my Savior. I, I ask, Lord, that you would rescue me from my sin. And I ask as well that Jesus would be the leader of my life from this point forward. That you would take control. That you would do your work in me to make me new, retool me, to make a masterpiece of my life. Lord, I give my life to you. If that's the prayer of your heart this morning, Right where you sit, would you just slip your hand up so I can see it? I'd like to be able to pray for you. Is there anyone? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any others? I'm going to pray for those of you who've said yes to Jesus Day. But before I do that, I'd just like to encourage you to do one thing before you leave today. On your way out to the main parking lot, you're going to find a, a great big green banner that says yes on it. And Paul's going to be standing there beside the banner. And what I'd like you to do is just go up to Paul and say, I said yes. That's all you have to say. And he wants to put in your hands a little booklet we've prepared especially for you called Saying Yes to a Relationship with Jesus. And it kind of goes over some of the things we've been talking about here today and talks about first steps in your new life in Christ. So make sure before you leave to to go up to Paul and say, I said yes. And he'll make sure to get one of these in your hands before you go. Father, we are grateful not only that you raised Jesus from the dead long ago, but that you're still bringing people to new life in Christ to this very day. And I pray for all those who have raised their hands this morning and ask that you would send them forth with assurance based on what you say in your word, that he who believes has eternal life, that those who confess their sins can be, will be forgiven of their sins in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would watch over them and keep them and that your spirit would begin a new work in them such that, that they would begin to live lives that that astound them, that their lives will become masterpieces of your grace, producing beautiful and good things to the glory of Jesus. Lord, for those of us who've known Christ as Savior and Lord for a long time, we once again just give you thanks for this reminder today of all that is ours in Christ, what we were without Jesus and what we've become in him, what you're making of us, by the power of your spirit who lives in us. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place today, we would go with gratitude, 
not just for a Savior who died, but for a Savior who lives again and lives in us and through us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.